following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. In the year 1551, five young men set out from Geneva, one of the great Reformation Protestant strongholds where John Calvin was the chief pastor, and they set out for the French city of Lyon. Lyon was the second great city of France, much as it is today. And they had gone to Lyon because the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ had begun to take root in that French city. Indeed, throughout France, the gospel was spreading rapidly. And these five young men, five young students, went to Lyon to assist the cause of Jesus Christ in Lyon. They were arrested and they were condemned to death. A number of leading uh, pastors throughout Europe wrote to the authorities in Lyon pleading that these young men would have their lives spared. John Calvin wrote them two letters. And in the second of the letters, he said this, God has prevented your release. They were executed. God has prevented your release. It wasn't that the authorities in the Roman Roman Catholic city of Lyon had made the ultimate decision regarding these young men. It wasn't that the circumstances were so much against them that it was inevitable that death would be the outcome of their folly. God has prevented your release. And Calvin was saying to these five young men, in your extremity, you need to lay hold of this, that God's ways are not your ways, that God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. That's an extreme example of the ways of God that leave us bewildered and speechless. God has prevented your release. Calvin doesn't seek to attenuate the trial. He says, this is what you need to understand, that overall, surrounding all that is going on, is the gracious, sovereign will and purpose of your heavenly Father. In fact, if I remember rightly, in one of the letters, he says to them, Entrust yourselves into the bosom of the Father who loves you. God's ways are not our ways. And we see this very dramatically in this 88th Psalm. It's an extreme song of lament. It's a remarkable feature of the Psalter that 40%, almost 40%, 39 point whatever percent, 
of the Psalms are laments. Laments. Now we're not told why this man, Haman, is suffering so overwhelmingly. We don't actually know for sure who he is. You'll you'll read various things, and Professor Morales could say a lot more about this than I could. There are various conjectures regarding his lineage. Was he really the grandson of Samuel? Um, Was he one of the appointees of David to be a, 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 a temple singer? But we don't know for sure really who he was. And we're not told precisely in the psalm why he is suffering so overwhelmingly. And again, various commentators give a number of conjectures. But we're not told perhaps so that in the generality of the language, we might be able to apply it generally to the people of God that no matter what particular reason a believer may have for their desolation and discouragement, they might be able to read in this psalm something that addresses their situation and minister to them hope. Now that might seem a strange thing to say, minister to them hope. Look how the psalm ends. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness, or darkness as my only friend. Does that not tell us that the psalm ends in despair? There's no spark of hope, is there? Surely it ends with unremitting darkness. Darkness is my only companion. Well, I hope we will see that while the psalm ends as it ends, there is from the very opening note in the psalm hope that at times may be all but extinguished but remains in the midst of whatever darkness may overwhelm us. Now this, of course, is one man's experience, but it belongs to the, in, 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 to the congregational songbook of the Christian church. It's found in Holy Scripture. It's one man's experience, but God the Holy Spirit has deposited this lament in his word. And maybe it's worth just asking the question, why? Why is such a psalm, such a song in the song? But when did you last sing Psalm 88? Have you ever sung Psalm 88? I hope you have. God the Holy Spirit inspired it, breathed it out, Because we need the panoply of Scripture. Calvin speaks famously of the Psalter as an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And maybe you think, well, I don't know anything about this darkness. Maybe not now, but yet. And maybe there are others 
whom you will encounter, for whom darkness is a reality. I have a friend who once said to me when I was 19, I envied the lampposts of Glasgow because they had light. Everything about me was shrouded in darkness. Darkness within, darkness without. I envied the lampposts because they had light. And in his kindness and in his mercy, I think more in his kindness even than in his mercy, God has seen fit to deposit this song in the congregational songbook of the people of God. Now, as I said, we don't know for sure who this Haman the Ezraite was. We don't know the nature of his suffering. What we do know is that he is in utter extremis. Darkness has covered all around him and within him. All the lights have gone out for Haman the Ezraite. In fact, he says, doesn't he, in the psalm, that from his youth, from his youth, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors and am helpless. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, this believing man knew nothing but unrelieved darkness in his life. His soul is in unrelieved turmoil. Look what he writes in in verses 16 and 17 again. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. Now here is a man who understands that behind the second causes of life, is the one who ordains and orchestrates all of life. He knows that somewhat, somehow, mysteriously, perplexingly, God is behind all that is happening in his life. God isn't a bystander, a helpless bystander who's wringing his hands, thinking, oh, if only I could help my servant, Haman the Ezraite, our God is in the heavens who does whatsoever he pleases. He ordains all that comes to pass. Everywhere Haman looks, it seems that his God, the God of his salvation, Verse 1, has turned against him. He's a broken man. And the psalm confronts us with a blunt reality. And the blunt reality is this, that being in covenantal saving relationship with the Lord does not mean that we will escape the difficulties and perplexities of life in a fallen world. Remember how the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, is it verse 18, speaks about the sufferings of this present time. God does not insulate his people 
from the sufferings of this present time, nor from the exigencies of his providences. Before we reflect on the psalm in a little more detail, I want to ask a question. Are we to assume from the psalm that Haman is a depressed believer? And many commentators just assume that. Here is someone who is in the dark depths of depression. Well, I'm not persuaded of that. When I read Psalm 88, my my mind always goes back to Psalm 44. Now, you may not know Psalm 44, but let me just read to you some verses in the psalm. The psalmist is utterly bewildered with God. God's ways with him, God's dealings with him have left him in utter turmoil and bewilderment. He writes in verse, is it 20? If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to foreign gods, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's bewildered with God. Lord, why is this happening? Why are you against me and against your people? Why are we being overwhelmed by our enemies? And Paul picks up those words, doesn't he, in Romans chapter 8. And he says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. You see, faithfulness inevitably brings suffering in one form or another in this life. The psalmist in Psalm 44 was not grasping that the reason why he was experiencing what he was experiencing was because it was for your sake we're facing death all the day long. And I think, well, for myself, for what it's worth, that that Haman is a despondent believer. Absolutely, he's despondent, but he's not depressed. Now, don't get me wrong here. Christians get depressed for all kinds of reasons. Some good, some not so good. Depression is a real uh, experience for believers. We're psychosomatic men and women, boys and girls. But we need to understand that what often is conceived to be depression is part of the sheer cost of being faithful to God in a godless world, of suffering, filling up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, the church. That's why the Lord Jesus was always insistent in one way or another saying to to would-be disciples to count the cost. Do you know what you're letting yourself in for? Oh, I, I want to follow you, Lord, wherever you go. Count the cost. Count the cost. So here is a man who is in the depths, but in the depths he's crying out to his God. I want to notice six things with you in the psalm. Notice first of all in each of them, 
very simple, very basic. Notice, first of all, that in his darkness he prayed. His darkness did not drive him from God. It drove him to God and cast him upon God. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. His extreme trial, darkness becoming his only companion, his extreme trial did not make him disaffected with God. It did not lead him to deny God. It did not cause him to run from God. It drove him to God in his extremity. It's as if he is throwing himself upon God. That's always to be our first movement in life in general as Christians. And when trials and troubles come, we need to learn to run to God and cast ourselves upon him. Cast ourselves upon him. Notice secondly that he prayed as a man of faith. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. His faith has become somewhat attenuated. His faith is being shaken. It's being battered. It may even in a sense be broken, but it's functioning. It's functioning. When God, in his grace, plants the grace of faith in our hearts and lives, he plants it deeply. He plants it enduringly. It's not a grace that he will take from you, having once given it to you. Your faith at times may be fragile. Your faith at times may hang by a thread. But it's a thread of God's spinning. And it's as a man of faith. The devil often would come to you as he certainly comes to me and, and say, look at your faith, how pathetic it is. And I almost always want to throw back in his face, you don't know how pathetic it is. But my salvation does not rest on the quality of my faith, but where my faith has taken me into Jesus Christ. He prays as a man of faith. And you'll notice that in his prayer, he is, he's utterly perplexed. What really bewilders Haman is why this should be the case. The Lord is the God of his salvation. But why? Why is this happening, Lord? Why are you sovereignly behind all that is crushing the life out of me? 
You know, the Christian isn't excused the whys of life in a fallen world. Look what he says in verse 14, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And we'll see in a little time that that's an an adumbrated echo, an outlined echo of the true man of faith, Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perfect, prototypical man of faith was not excused the why. Now his was a unique why, a redemptive historical why. But nonetheless, in our humanity, he experienced the the why of God's ways with him. So he prays, and he prays as a man of faith. But then thirdly, notice how he prays every day. Verse 1, I cry out day and night before you. Then in verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Every day, every morning, every night. And when it says morning and night, I don't think it means, I think it's a Hebraism. I think it means my whole being, every moment of every day is crying out to you. I didn't choose the other Bible readings, Genesis 22 this morning or Luke 18 this evening. Whoever did, did them very wisely. Men ought always to pray and not give up. And the psalmist is not letting God go. It's as if he's saying, like Jacob, I will not let you go until you bless. And we don't know how long this has been going on for. We don't know, but the psalmist knows this man, Haman the Ezraite, he knows that his only hope lies in his God. To whom else can I go, he's saying. To whom else can I go? I've nowhere else to go. I've no one else to go to. He's saying, my help is in the name of the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. I'm going nowhere else. I'm going to no one else. And night and day I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep pleading. And then fourthly, notice that he recognises, and I've touched on this, but let me just nail it down a little more. He recognises that the Lord is the one ultimately behind everything that's happening to him. Look at verse 6. You have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy on me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. This man in his extremity understands that evil is not autonomous, that Satan can do nothing beyond the holy, wise, good, and perfect will of God, that Satan is on God's leash, 
can go no further than God wills and purposes for him to go. You know, people talk often about God's permissive will. I'm never quite sure what that means. God decrees and he determines. He even uses the wrath of man to praise him. Astonishing. He uses sin sinlessly for his own glory. And and one of the wonders of heaven will be when the Lord, as I think he will, begin to explain to his children why this and why that, and we will just stand in utter speechless wonderment at the perfection of the ways of God. And what we need to understand is that Satan can do nothing beyond God's will. He's a creature under God's sovereign rule. It may seem at times that he has the upper hand. He is always, always doing the will of God. Mysteriously, wisely, and ultimately gloriously, God orchestrating all things to the praise of his glory. The fifth thing we should note, and this takes us to the heart of the psalm, that the believing life may be marked by unrelieved darkness. There's a verse in Isaiah 50, um, let him who walks in the darkness and who has no light yet trust in his God. I don't know what it's like to have no light. I've known times when darkness has pressed in upon me, on my mind and on my heart. I can't imagine what it's like to have no light. Let him who walks in the darkness and who has no light. And the psalm here provides a healthy dose of realism in the face of faith that can be presented as uh, once you believe, life may not be trouble-free, but you'll always be rising above the trials and the troubles of life. You'll be able to know the sunshine of God upon you. 40% of the Psalter is laments. You know why? Because to use quantifiable language, 40% of the believing life is a lament. Every day we lament sin in our own hearts, bewildered that Blessed so gloriously as we have been, we continue to sin. Sin isn't simply there, it grieves us, it puzzles us, it bewilders us. And we look around us at the state of the church and we see weakness and defeatness. We see departures from the Lord and from his truth. And we look at the nations to which we belong 
and we're bewildered by the absurdities that pass for normality. We live in an Alice in Wonderland world where good is called evil and evil is called good. And we live out that with the life of faith. The life of faith isn't romantic. It's unpredictable. The life of faith can be dark because life can be harsh and filled with suffering. And so when you read the Psalter, and I would encourage you every day, you know, keep reading the Psalter. Because the Psalms address all aspects of life, not just the good aspects. That's why we should be singing the Psalms. Someone asked me recently, you know, what do you think would be the best thing that could happen to the church? And I said, a rediscovery of the Psalter. Now, I I don't personally think we should just sing Psalms. I think we should be singing glorious Trinitarian hymns far more than we do. But I cannot but think because the Psalms have all but been eclipsed in the life of the evangelical church. That the realities of the life of faith have also been eclipsed. You see, here in Psalm 88, faith faces life as it is. There's no indication the psalmist had sinned, that what was happening to him was the result of his sin. There's no indication of that in the psalm. There are times when the Lord chastens us because of our sin. And there are times he deals with us that we might learn to trust him, love him, serve him better than we do. Sometimes he has to wean us away from ourselves and from others wean us away so that we might learn to put our trust and hope alone in him. You see, there's, in the believing life, there can be, now this may be an extreme example, granted, but the believing life, in its pristine character, may experience unrelieved darkness. And the psalm ends not with a a happy um, coda. It just ends. The Bible is very unsettling. I don't know how people can read the Bible and not be puzzled and perplexed and unsettled. I don't think there's a day I'm not saying, Lord, what's happening here? Why this? Why that? Why the other? Darkness, my only friend, full stop. There are cold, wintry nights of the soul when bleakness fills every horizon and darkness seems nearly complete. Maybe not for you, maybe not for me, but there are others 
for whom that is true. And any theology that's unwilling to face the darkness and turns away from confronting the realities of the darkness is not a biblical theology. My brothers and sisters, this is one reason why the church of God needs pastors and elders who are gentle and tender of heart. Because there are bruised people, and often many people in Christian churches, Reformed churches included, hide what's really going on under the surface in their lives. Perhaps because they're ashamed Perhaps because they think, if I really told people the, the darkness that overwhelms me, they'll think less of me. We need pastors and, and elders who are tender-hearted, who are gentle with those who are broken and bruised, who come alongside them not to berate them, but to stand with them and sit with them and weep with them. And then gently lead them in the way. Isn't it remarkable that as the Lord begins to outline for us the the characteristics of the servant, the Messiah servant in Isaiah 42 following, the first thing he tells us is that I will put my spirit upon him and he will not break a bruised reed. You won't hear his voice in the streets, not meaning he won't be an open-air preacher, but that he won't be unthreatening, that he will be unthreatening, that he won't be someone who clamors for attention, but someone who will tenderly and mercifully care for God's lambs. We need physicians of the soul who are slow to speak and quick to listen, who don't offer slick answers. But then finally, and this really would be the climax of what I want to say, believers have a companion who knows what it is to be consumed by darkness. The experience of Haman the Ezraite comes to its fullest expression in the experience of the leader of the worship of God, Jesus Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the Saviour on the cross, all the lights went out. There wasn't a pinprick in the cosmos for the Son of God to be nourished by. There was just darkness. The darkness that covered the land was sacramental of the darkness that enshrouded his soul. And Psalm 88 is a cry that finds its omega point in the cry of our Saviour. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, as I said earlier, that cry is a unique cry. But because it was a cry that was wrung from his human nature, and because he shares that nature with us, 
He understands what darkness is. He knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Jesus Christ knows darkness because he experienced it. He knows it from within. He knows it not simply by divine omniscience. He knows it by theanthropic experience, the experience of the God-man in our flesh. He knows what it is for the lights to go out. Now, Psalm 88 is only one of 150 psalms. The life of faith is gloriously variegated. It reaches great heights. And it can sink to great depths. But in the depths, we have a companion who will never fail us nor forsake us, who knows what it is for all the lights to go out. The Psalms reflect in their variety the manifold nature of saving faith. And that's why the opening words of the psalm breathe hope through the unrelieved darkness that permeates the rest of the psalm. O God, God of my salvation, God of my salvation, I cry out to you. You know, the life of faith is all about personal pronouns. Hope you know what a personal pronoun is. It's all about personal pronouns. The Son of God loved me, gave himself for me. Yes, he loved the church and gave himself for the church. But what a great word Paul writes in Galatians 2. He loved me. Thomas Goodwin, somewhere in his works, maybe volume five, I can't remember the page, volume five, says, Jesus Christ did not die for sin in the lump. He died for particular sins. And he died for particular people. O Lord, God of my salvation. That's the heart of everything. Everything that follows rests on that opening declaration of unqualified faith. To whom else can I go? To whom else can I go? We've got no one else to go to. May the Lord help us every day to go to him. And not least when times are hard and life is perplexing and darkness seems to just find its way through every crack and crevice in our lives into our inmost being. May we never forget that we have a saviour who knows 
and who triumphed because the last word in Haman's life would not be his darkness because he didn't quite experience it though he knew it he had a companion other than darkness the God of his salvation and that's why hope shines brightly against the darkness of that 88th Psalm. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.